Hello, and welcome to the 80s Movie Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so already, please make sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcatching source. While a good review and rating won't increase our chances of being found or being a featured podcast on a podcatcher like Apple or Spotify, it will potentially help increase the odds of someone who does find the show for the first time thinking that clicking play will be a good time investment for them. And it's something you can even do while you're listening to this episode. On this episode, I'm going to be giving a short history of the motion picture exhibition industry over the past 40 years, with a focus on one specific theater that was very close to me. A theater that today, July 16th, 2022, would have turned 40 years old had it not been closed in June 2010. A theater that was the first megaplex in the United States. A theater that changed the industry for better and for worse. A theater that I was a manager at and on three different occasions between 1991 and 2010. And if you didn't catch that connection there, a theater that I had the sad task of closing down and watching from afar as it was gutted and turned into a Forever 21. On this episode, we'll be talking about the Beverly Center Cinemas. As is typical with me in this show, we don't just start on July 16, 1982, because a lot of things had to happen before we could get there. Movie theaters have existed almost as long as there have been movies. Movie theater historians love to argue about when and where and how the first movie was shown, where and when the first permanent movie theater opened, and pretty much everything you talk about when it comes to movie theaters. In fact, I even expect to get at least one email from an irate listener because of the definition of megaplex has changed over the years, and they will protest that the Beverly Center Cinemas was not the first megaplex in the United States, and that title belongs to the Universal City Cineplex 18, about six miles to the north of the Beverly Center, which opened in July of 1987. Others might say the first megaplex really was the AMC Grand 24, which opened in May of 1995. And that's all fine and dandy, but until the Beverly Center opened in 1982, no company had ever tried to fit so many theaters under one roof in America. There had, however, been one theater that had done it before and actually did it bigger. An upstart Canadian exhibition company called Cineplex opened an 18-screen movie theater on the bottom level of the garage to a new shopping area called the Eaton Center in Toronto, in April 1979. 18 theaters, with seating capacities ranging from 57 to 167, with the idea that if a theater had 18 screens, each playing a different movie, one could attract a wide variety of moviegoers. Nat Taylor, the head of Cineplex Theaters, would tell Sid Edelman of the Los Angeles Times in August of 1979 that the Cineplex Eaton Center 18 was catering to fragmented audiences, with special taste in first-run foreign movies, classic films that would be shown in repertory, reissues of Hollywood product that got, as he put it, the short shrift the first time around, and basically anything that people with minority interests wanted. There's a market for any picture ever made, Taylor said, even those already shown on television. Cineplex would spend $2 million building the theater, helping to keep costs down by installing 16mm projectors instead of the industry-standard 35mm 
in all of the projection booths. This would make getting some of the more popular Hollywood films difficult, but with programming that included the first runs of such films as A Clockwork Orange, The Exorcist, Last Tango in Paris, and Tommy on local screens in several years, as well as non-North American movies like Rainer Werner Fassbinder's The Marriage of Maria Braun, The Picture Show Man, or Weekend of Shadows, none of which had ever played in Toronto before, the Cineplex Eaton Center would overcome some early hiccups to become one of the most successful theaters not only in Canada, but on the entire planet. A few months after the opening of the Cineplex Eaton Center 18, the company would start construction on three additional screens at the Eaton Center Theater, and it would make a decision that would change the theatrical exhibition business forever. Garth Rubinsky, the co-founder of Cineplex Theaters, would get a call from Sheldon Gordon, a real estate developer who had made a name for himself by creating new retail spaces with never-before-seen features. In 1970, Gordon was developing a shopping center in Hawaii, where he was required to preserve an environmentally protected watercress farm. So he would end up building the Pearl Ridge Mall in two sections, with the first-ever shopping center monorail system to connect them. Several years later, he would build the first-ever pedestrian bridge over a major highway to connect different sections of a mall in San Jose. But in 1980, Gordon was planning his biggest complex yet. Gordon was planning to build a major shopping complex on a plot of land at the southwest corner of Beverly and La Cienega Boulevards in Los Angeles, which had, until recently, been the home of a small amusement park. The Beverly Center, as it would be called, would present a number of challenges for the developers. The block it would be taking up was not a normal block, as its western cross street, San Vicente Boulevard, literally snakes its way around Los Angeles and neighboring West Hollywood. And then there's the oil derricks, which would need to continue to operate, even as the mall was being built around them. But Gordon had a plan. The first level would be restaurants, including the first-ever Hard Rock Cafe location in the United States, and valet parking. Levels 2 through 5 would be parking. But not just parking. Free parking, an almost unheard-of concept at a shopping complex in that part of Los Angeles at the time. Levels 6 and 7 would be some of the finest retail shops around. And Gordon wanted Cineplex to build a theater on level 8. Gordon had already been churned down by many of the exhibitors that were operating theaters in Los Angeles, including AMC, General Cinema, Man Theaters, Pacific Theaters, and United Artists. Because of the height of the building and it being centered in earthquake-prone Los Angeles, the lobby and auditoriums would have to be squeezed in between spaces where support columns would need to be. They would not be able to create a theater larger than, say, 140 seats, and a few would be so small they would have as few as 60 seats, with a screen not even 10 feet wide diagonally. And, worse of all, the proposed theater would be between two of the most coveted clearance zones in the nation. The theater would not just be competing for films against theaters like the world-famous Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, but also theaters like the Avco, the National, and the Village in Westwood, in addition to other theaters in the same gray area like the Century Plaza in Century City. But Drabinsky knew exactly why Gordon was calling him. Gordon had seen what Taylor and Drabinsky had done with the Eaton Center and knew these guys would know what to do. 
As Drabinsky would write in his autobiography, Closer to the Sun, which was published when the author was 46 years old, quote, but even as he talked, the he being Gordon, I could see the answer. The original Eaton Center format. We would play first-run art and specialty movies and move-over runs from Westwood and Hollywood Boulevard. Those screens were in such demand that first-run films were customarily taken off when still grossing twenty to $30,000 weekly. The demand was unceasing. Every filmmaker wants his movie to open in the backyards of the fellows who run the studios. They want visibility, and this means a lot of turnover. These egotists need to be massaged constantly with the biggest lettering on the marquees and the most prestigious theater locations, unquote. Nat Taylor saw the potential success of the theater not just on the movies that it would be playing, but in the parking available to its patrons. Thousands and thousands of free parking spaces on four floors, in an area that was tragically short on parking. Drabinsky would fly from Toronto to Los Angeles to meet with Sheldon Gordon at the location. And within five minutes, he knew he had lucked into a gold mine. I'll build you 16 screens with 1,200 seats at the top of your crazy mall, Drabinsky would tell Gordon. Construction on the Beverly Center would start in late 1980, and almost immediately, Sheldon Gordon would run into some financial troubles thanks to the ongoing recession. And he would need to take on a new partner on the project. Detroit real estate billionaire A. Alfred Taubman. And the first person Mr. Taubman wanted to meet about the Beverly Center was Garth Drabinsky. The day after Taubman was aboard the Beverly Center project, he called Drabinsky in Toronto. I'll meet you at the Eaton Center at 2.30 Tuesday afternoon, Taubman would tell Drabinsky. If you're going to be one of my tenants, I want to see if you can be taken seriously. At 2.30 on Tuesday, Mr. Taubman was at the front door of the Eaton Center Cineplex Cinemas. Impeccably dressed, Taubman knew a thing or two about the theatrical exhibition industry. Having partnered with United Artists on more than two dozen theaters at other Taubman malls across America, with more than 140 screens between them. But Taubman would be fascinated by the Eaton Center Theater. After touring the entire facility from the projection booths to the snack bar, Taubman's first question to Drabinsky was whether or not he was certain this could work at the Beverly Center. But before Drabinsky could even answer, Taubman would answer himself. I don't know, but I have no choice. I need you. I need you to be in this project. By 4 p.m., Taubman was back in his limo on the way to the airport, confident that Drabinsky was certain this could work at the Beverly Center. As construction continued in 1981, Drabinsky came to realize that maybe 16 screens was a bit too much for the space and decided to take four of the smaller auditoriums and make them into two larger ones if indeed 140 seats could be considered quote-unquote larger. This was still more than double the number of screens of any other theater in Los Angeles at that point. And at the end of 1981, there were around 20,000 movie screens at roughly 8,500 indoor and outdoor theaters, which would be an average of 2.35 screens per location. Remember that number, 2.35 screens per theater location on average. The Beverly Center was set to open in July 1982, and the need to have one of its anchor tenants ready to go pushed a strain on Cineplex. Budgeted at $2 million, the theater would have a number of overruns and delays that would put the company 
another half million dollars in the red on the build. The only thing that would keep Cineplex afloat at the time was a deal that Drabinsky had made with 20th Century Fox that was finalized just two weeks before the planned July 16th theater opening. That brought $3.5 million into the company in exchange for the rights to a few films like The Amateur and Losing It that Drabinsky had helped to produce outside of Cineplex. While The Amateur would not be a big hit, Losing It would bring a long-term windfall to both Fox and Drabinsky thanks to the casting of two unknown actors who would become big stars in the coming year, Shelley Long and Tom Cruise. When the mall and the theater opened on July 16, 1982, they were an immediate hit. The Beverly Center would become one of the top shopping destinations in all Los Angeles, while the theater would become one of the busiest in all of America. It was not uncommon to see a number of Hollywood's younger stars holding court at the Hard Rock on the first floor, take the freight elevator to the eighth floor, see a movie at the theater, and then head back down to the Hard Rock after the movie to continue the party. But those first movies at the Beverly Center Cineplex weren't exactly the blockbuster types. Here are the movies that opened the theater on July 16, 1982. Author, Author. A comedy featuring Al Pacino as a Broadway playwright trying to raise his son and stepchildren. It had originally opened in theaters in mid-June. Chariots of Fire, the winner of the 1981 Academy Award for Best Picture, which had been playing around town since the previous September. Dawn's Party, a 1976 Bruce Beresford comedy about a wild night when a group of friends get together to watch the results of the 1969 Australian elections. It had originally opened in theaters in late May. Firefox, a Clint Eastwood movie where he plays an American pilot sent into the Soviet Union to steal a prototype jet from the commies. It had originally opened in theaters in mid-June. Garde à vous, a 1981 French thriller with Lino Ventura as a police inspector who questions an attorney he believes is responsible for the rapes and murders of two local children. It had originally opened in theaters in mid-April. Quest for Fire, which follows three prehistoric tribesmen searching for a new source for fire. It had originally opened in theaters in mid-February. The Secret Policeman's Other Ball, a British comedy concert movie featuring Rowan Atkinson, Peter Cook, and members of the Monty Python troupe, which benefited Amnesty International. It had originally opened in theaters in late May. A Week's Vacation, a 1980 French drama directed by Bertrand Tavignier, featuring Natalie Bay as a young schoolteacher who reflects on her life choices during a week off from work. It had originally opened in American theaters in late March. You'll notice on that list that there were zero movies that were opening on their first breaks at the Beverly Center that week, and most of them were more than four weeks into their releases. Yet the theater, whose opening day ad in Los Angeles Times, touted it as the largest cinema complex of its type in the United States with 14 screens under just one roof, the theater actually opened with just 10 screens operating. The other four would need a few more weeks to be completed. Another major innovation Cineplex would bring to movie theaters was computerized ticketing. Today, when you can open your smartphone and buy reserve seating for a movie on an app, Computerized ticketing might sound rather quaint, but up until 1982, theaters sold tickets the old-fashioned way, 
with a motorized ticket puller that would dispense up to five tickets at a time. The system was called Punch and Fold, and I'll put a video up of one of these with the notes for this episode on our new website, the80smoviepodcast.com, so you can see what I'm talking about. But with the Punch and Fold ticketing system, a theater couldn't sell advanced tickets at all. Let's say, for example, you wanted to see Star Wars on opening day, Wednesday, May 25, 1977, at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. When the box office opened at 12 noon, you could only buy tickets for the first show of the day, which, on this day, was at 12.45 p.m. If you wanted to get tickets for the 8 p.m. show, you'd need to wait for the 12.45 show and then the 3.05 show to be over, and for either all of the tickets for the 5.30 show to have sold out, or 30 minutes after the start of that show, before you could buy your tickets for the 8 o'clock show. And if you were trying to see Star Wars at the Chinese Theater on opening day, you would have stood in one line, likely with a thousand other people waiting to buy the tickets, in the hopes that you weren't so far back in line that all 1,492 available seats for the 8 p.m. show didn't sell out before you got to the ticket booth. And if that happened, you'd either be buying tickets for the 1025 show and looking for things to do for several hours in the area, or you'd have to give it another shot another day. So, yeah, the ability to show up at the Cineplex Beverly Center box office around 12.15 p.m. to get tickets for the 7 p.m. show of Quest for Fire was pretty darn awesome at the time. As I mentioned a moment ago, Taylor and Dabrinsky were certain that they were onto something special. They thought the theater might be a literal goldmine. The in-house estimate at the Cineplex Home Office in Toronto for the first year of ticket sales at the Beverly Center was $2.5 million. The actual number ended up being closer to $4 million. With an average ticket price in Los Angeles being about $3.37 in 1982, that meant about 1.2 million people came to see a movie at the Cineplex Beverly Center in its first year. It would take a couple of years, but eventually Hollywood would take better notice of the box office grosses coming out of the Cineplex Beverly Center and start to book more and more first-run movies at the theater. One of the benefits of having so many screens under one roof was that if there was a sudden, unexpected movie release, Cineplex had more options to be able to make room for it. This would be the case in December 1985, when Universal Studios pressured by the Los Angeles Film Critics Association naming Terry Gilliam's Brazil the best movie of the year, even though it hadn't opened in theaters yet. Universal and Gilliam were embroiled in a battle over the movie's length and tone, and the critics group felt that awarding Brazil its top prize would put Universal in an uncomfortable spot of having a Best Picture Award winner from a major critics group not playing in theaters. And it worked. With only a few days to open it before December 25th, the final day a movie can open in Los Angeles and still qualify for Academy Award consideration, Universal would release Gilliam's somewhat truncated 132-minute version of Brazil on two screens at the Beverly Center on Christmas Day. This would also be the first time I ever visited the Cineplex Beverly Center. I was living in Long Beach at the time, going to Long Beach City College during the day, and working as a file clerk in a law firm four nights a week. But on most holidays, I would be with my family in Palm Desert. We'd open presents in the morning, swim in Aunt Alice's pool in the afternoon, and have dinner around 5 p.m. Dinner would finish around 7, and I excused myself, 
saying I needed to get back home because I had a paper to finish, which was actually not a lie. I did have a paper to finish, and my stepmom, Bernice, knew that. But what she didn't know, since she and my brother would be staying another night in the desert, was that I hopped in my late 60s VW Bug and drove the 133 miles from Aunt Alice's house to the Beverly Center with just enough time to get one ticket for the 1045 show of Brazil. Now, to say I fell in love with the Beverly Center that night was an understatement. I loved that there were so many different movies playing at the same theater. If I didn't see Brazil at the Beverly Center that night, I could have seen Bud Yorkin's Twice in a Lifetime, or Kiss of the Spider Woman, or The Official Story, or the Luc Besson punk thriller Subway, or the Laura Dern coming-of-age drama Smooth Talk. And I would go as often as I could, even when I ended up back in Santa Cruz for what I was supposed to be one summer, but it ended up being five years. I would take multiple trips back to Los Angeles each year, not only to visit my brother and stepmom, but also to go to the movies that would probably not be playing in Santa Cruz for months that I didn't particularly want to wait and see. And many of those movies played at the Beverly Center. Before I continue, if you want to learn more about the battle between Universal Studios and Terry Gilliam, there's an amazing book by the late, great Los Angeles Times critic Jack Matthews called The Battle for Brazil that you absolutely must read. By the start of the summer movie season of 1986, Cineplex had been able to parlay their success with the Beverly Center into building dozens of theaters all across America, as well as purchasing the Plitt Theater Company and their 607 screens in 211 theaters in November of 1985, and 49 screens in Georgia at 13 theaters when they purchased Septum Theaters in April 1986. They had also purchased one of their main competitors in Canada, Canadian Odeon Theaters, and would hence be known as Cineplex Odeon Theaters. But the Beverly Center was still, at the moment, their top priority. It would be in the fall of 1986 when Drabinsky would approach Mr. Taubman with a proposition. Drabinsky wanted to expand the theater, but there was literally no place to go but up. What would Topman think if Cineplex Odeon gutted three of the theaters on the main floor in order to build a staircase and elevator that would take guests to two new auditoriums that would be built on a section of the roof? Instead of three small theaters with a combined capacity of less than 400 seats, one of the new proposed auditoriums would seat more than 500 people and the other more than 300, both with balcony seating and 70mm projection with six-track Dolby stereo sound and an additional snack bar down the hall that would lead guests to the theaters to increase snack bar sales by doubling the number of open registers at any time. They would start gutting those tiny theaters before the end of the year, and the new auditoriums on the roof would be open in time for the summer 1987 movie season. And Cineplex would continue to grow. Between May of 1986 and December 1987, they would buy six more American movie theater chains, putting an additional 409 screens and 142 theaters under their control. By the end of the 1980s, Cineplex Odeon would become the largest exhibition company in the United States. They would also start their own distribution company, Cineplex Odeon Films, and their own home video label, Cineplex Odeon Home Video. And they also benefited by not only selling a 49.9% stake in the company to Universal Studios, 
But they would open what would become the biggest movie theater in America to date on July 1st, 1987, when the 18-screen, 5,500-seat Universal City Cineplex Odeon opened just outside the gates to the studio's theme park in Los Angeles. In the summer of 1991, my best friend Dick was planning to move from Santa Cruz to Los Angeles, but one of the guys he was supposed to move with backed out at the last minute, and he asked me if I wanted to move with him. Five days later, a U-Haul was packed, and without a job lined up, I headed back to my hometown. Having five years of theater management experience under my belt, I thought it would be easy for me to get a job at a theater in Los Angeles, because there were hundreds of theaters in the county. But after three weeks of looking for a job, I took the first one that was offered to me, becoming a cashier at the Universal City Cineplex. The general manager of the theater at the time, Jody Bolstad, wanted me as a manager, but he didn't have an opening at the time. But I did very quickly become the lead cashier at what was, at the time, the busiest movie theater in the United States. But I was really holding out for a job at the Beverly Center. That call would come in September 1991. Susie Golan, the GM of the Beverly Center, had held on to my resume. And as soon as there was an opening at her theater, she called me in for an interview and hired me the same day. She would make me her lead box office manager, which meant I was in charge of hiring and training the box office personnel, reconciling the cash earnings and the safe at the end of the nights I worked, and entering the sales data into the computer so the home office, which by 1991 now was down the street in Century City, could have the ticket and snack bar sales the same night. The Beverly Center by this time was selling more than $7 million worth of tickets a year, bringing in about 1.5 guests per year. It was one of the most coveted theaters for a distributor to open a movie, or to have a test screening of an upcoming movie to get audience reactions and feedback, and to test new theater equipment. If you saw a Universal Studios movie at the Beverly Center between September 1992 and June 1993, be it Mr. Baseball or The Public Eye, Dr. Giggles or Trespass, Matinee or Army of Darkness, CB4 or Dragon the Bruce Lee Story, you heard those movies in DTS Digital Sound, which was tested at the Beverly Center before its official debut with Jurassic Park on June 11, 1993. I loved the job. I got to meet a lot of great people, both co-workers and guests. And two of my favorite guests would end up becoming good friends. Dick Mason, who created the Warner Brothers Studio Tour in 1973, and Max Miller, a journalist and filmmaker whose 1973 documentary Youthquake won the Golden Globe for Best Documentary Feature. Max would regularly ask me to help him with his assignments covering the major award shows, and he would become a big influence in my future life as a journalist. I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast if it weren't for him, and I definitely never would have met Roger Ebert at the Academy's main office in Beverly Hills in the early 90s, when Ebert was in town covering that year's Oscar nominations announcements, if Max hadn't asked me to get his press materials that morning. It was also at the Beverly Center that I got to know Louis Anderson, although I never saw him outside the theater. But let me tell you, there were few Hollywood stars as nice and sweet as Louis. In June 1993, I had the opportunity to become a general manager with Landmark Theaters, an opportunity that wasn't going to be coming anytime soon at Cineplex Odeon. Somehow, Louie heard I was leaving the theater, and on my final night at the Beverly Center, a Thursday night, 
the night of the first midnight screenings of Jurassic Park, he came by the theater to say goodbye to me and give me a thank you present for being, I guess, what could be only called as being a friend with him, even though I only saw him on Friday or Saturday nights at my place of work. I opened the wrapped present and found myself with a signed proof copy of his book, Goodbye Jumbo, Hello Cruel World, which wouldn't be released for another three months. I still went to the Cineplex Odeon Beverly Center Cinemas from time to time over the years, but I'd eventually move back to Santa Cruz again, move back to Los Angeles again, move away again, this time to Colorado and then New York City, before returning to Los Angeles in 2005. By this time, the Beverly Center was no longer the theater I remembered or had worked at. In 2002, real estate developer Rick Caruso had opened The Grove, a massive retail and entertainment complex barely one mile east of the Beverly Center. With a trolley that would roll up and down the shopping area, dancing water fountains, and a brand new state-of-the-art 14-screen movie theater, both the Beverly Center and the Cineplex Odeon Theater at the mall would see a years-long slide into mostly obscurity. By 2003, Cineplex would sell itself to New York-based exhibitors Lowe's, and 2005, Lowe's Cineplex would buy out their Beverly Center contract with Taubman Centers. Man Theaters, a Los Angeles-based exhibitor that had previously churned down the opportunity to build the Beverly Center cinemas, would take the theater over, with the understanding that they would be allowed to make significant but creative changes to the theater space including reducing the number of screens from 13 to 8. And in August 2007, I would get a call from the district manager of Man Theaters, who I had been working for since February of 2006, that I would be transferring to the Beverly Center as its general manager. It wasn't the assignment it might have been 10 or 20 years earlier, but for me, it was a dream that was finally coming true. Or at least that's what I thought at the time. The truth of the matter was, Mann and Taubman couldn't come to any kind of agreement on how to improve the theater. Mann had a zero-cost lease, which meant splitting the theater's share of the ticket sales with Taubman Centers and a portion of the snack bar sales. But it also meant Mann had zero incentive to improve the theater until the renovation was agreed upon. Nor did it help that the theater was basically being mostly run as a third-run theater, the last stop before home video. And not even a dollar house either. First-run tickets were about $10 in the area at the time, and the Beverly Center tickets were $7. The booking sucked. Ticket sales had been down considerably. The staff was unhappy. The projection equipment was old and breaking down. And outside of being able to get Warner Brothers to allow us to play Blade Runner The Final Cut in our largest auditorium, with its massive 80-foot-wide screen and six-track DTS digital sound system, with more than 60 surround speakers, we could not get a half-decent film to save our lives. After three months of little business and a huge blow-up with my boss over an incident I had handled exactly as he asked me to without deriving the outcome he had desired, I was transferred out of the Beverly Center into a theater in Glendale, where I spent a miserable year and a half of being a second fiddle to a narcissistic manager I could run circles around. And then... A miracle. Man Theaters, tired of not getting the concessions they wanted out of Tapman Centers to refurbish the theater, got out of their agreement in August 2009. And Rave Cinemas, a Texas-based exhibitor, 
was picking up the theater as its first location in Los Angeles. But it wouldn't be an official rave cinema since rave at the time was known as an all-digital projection chain and the Beverly Center still had zero digital projectors. And they were looking for a new general manager. I sent my resume into their Dallas home office, and then the next day I started a week-long series of phone interviews with five different rave GMs across the nation. It was certainly a different way of getting vetted for a job, but if it would get me out of my current situation, and they were committed to improving the theater the way they said they were, why not give it a shot? When it finally came time to interview with the VP of Operations who had flown in to Los Angeles to meet with me and one other candidate, I was nervous, especially after learning I was going to be the second interview. I still don't know who the first candidate was, but when I walked into my former office and sat down in the chair a number of people I interviewed over the years sat in, I had a feeling everything was going to be okay. Mr. Gehrig, the VP, started asking me a whole bunch of questions that had nothing to do with movie theaters. Personal stuff. Which sports I liked. Things like that. And there was one other gentleman in the room, much younger than I, who also had some interesting but off-topic questions. Finally, after 20 minutes or so, I answered one of their questions, but I had to stop them for a moment. I meant no disrespect, but I was wondering if we were going to start talking about my ideas of how to run the theater. Mr. Gehrig laughed and smiled. I already knew I was hiring the moment you walked in, he told me. I just wanted to get to know you. The other gentleman, who was down from the Rave Cinemas in Brentwood, California, about 300 miles to the north, was going to be assisting me with learning the Rave way for a few weeks. I left Man Theaters on September 10th, 2009, and started my third stint at the Beverly Center the following day, and I had four aces in my hand. Mr. Gehrig absolutely agreed with the direction I wanted to take the theater. Alan Benjamin, the head of Rave's real estate division who had previously tried to refresh the Beverly Center Cineplex right after Lowe's and Cineplex merged several years earlier, had personally worked with Mr. Taubman on Rave's pickup of the theater. One thing Mr. Tapman was adamant about was that as long as he was still around, the theater would remain open. The theater had made the Beverly Center, and he was not going to let it go without a fight. The third ace was Richard Spriggs, the manager from the Northern California Theater, who was only with me for four weeks, but absolutely got me on the right path for success with Rave. And then there was Eric Bond, the man who helped me book the theater each week. The Beverly Center might have been the last theater he called each week about what was going to be playing there the following week, but he could have not been more supportive of what I wanted to do with the theater. Instead of just booking the theater the way Mann was booking it, with played-out hits or absolute bombs just filling space, Eric would listen to my crazy suggestions about playing more independent and foreign films the way the theater had been programmed in the mid-1980s the theater that I fell in love with. So when the South Korean Western The Good, The Bad, and The Weird finished its one-week run at the New Art Theater, one of the showcase theaters in Los Angeles for specialized movies, I asked Eric to check if any other theater in town was going to pick it up. When the answer came back that no one was, despite a respectable gross at the New Art, he got it for me. When the Davis Guggenheim documentary It Might Get Loud finished what I thought was a too-short run at another specialty theater in town, 
I made sure Eric got it for the theater. And I made sure to play it in Theater 13, one of two theaters in the building that shared no walls with any other auditorium. So there would be no sound issues if we played the movies a bit louder than usual. We ended up playing the film for three months because music fans had heard we were playing the movie loud. And a funny thing happened. During the first two months of our operating the theater, and Eric and the company humoring me with my out-of-the-box booking ideas, the theater, which had been a laughingstock amongst the Hollywood film community for years, was starting to make a comeback. After 10 years of continual ticket sale declines, the numbers were up. Double digits up. Up enough to start getting calls from Bollywood distributors looking for a more centralized location for their movies than Cerritos or Tustin. Calls from independent distributors who were having no luck with the bigger exhibitors in town. We would be the only non-Bollywood theater in town to play Three Idiots or My Name is Khan, and we would totally clean up on them in its opening weeks. Out of my own sheer will of knowing the film could find an audience if given a chance, I continued to play Black Dynamite, which had not done well in its initial release, long after every other theater had dumped it, and even made it a point of having an 11.30pm late show on Fridays and Saturday nights. And sure enough, it would develop enough of a following that we could sell out a 140-seat theater every week on those weekend late shows, and even have Black Dynamite himself, Michael Jai White, show up unannounced more than once to watch the movie with the crowd. But my favorite memory of that time frame, when I learned there was a Broken Lizard movie called The Slammin' Salmon, that had gotten a small release from a small distributor in several markets, but was not scheduled to play in Los Angeles. Eric made a call for me, and we would be playing the film the following Friday. On its first night, several of the actors in the film came to see the movie together, including Michael Clark Duncan, who played the titular character. After the show finished, I got a call on the radio from the usher at the podium who tore the tickets and sent the filmgoers to their theaters. There was a man in the lobby who wanted to talk to me. I came downstairs, and there was Michael Clark Duncan. All six foot five, three hundred plus pounds of him. He told me that they were all there because there had never been a customary cast and crew screening of the completed film, so this was the first chance any of them had gotten the opportunity to see it. He wanted to say thank you to the person he had heard was responsible for the movie playing at the theater. And then he pulled me into him and gave me a huge hug. I was getting a hug from Michael Clark Duncan. On purpose. And thinking about that moment as I wrote the script for this episode, I began tearing up because I miss him. His death ten years ago left a huge void in movies and television, literally and figuratively. The theater was doing well enough that just after four months, Rave would have a digital projector installed in theater number two, the 300-seat house on the roof. Ostensibly, the digital projector was installed to be ready to play Avatar whenever the theater at the Grove was done playing it, but that would be several weeks down the road. The first film I would book to play on my new digital projector was a film that had come out in June 2009 that hadn't done much business when it came out, but was to me one of the best movies of the year, The Hurt Locker. In early January 2010, The Hurt Locker was considered one of the better movies of the year, but it wasn't exactly the consensus of being the best picture of the year. 
But we were, as far as I remember, the first theater in Los Angeles to play the Hurt Locker digitally. And Summit Entertainment, the distributor, leaned hard into promoting the movie in local newspapers, reminding Academy voters that they and a guest could see the Hurt Locker for free. Fox Searchlight also used the theater several times to host Q&A sessions with Crazy Heart co-star Maggie Gyllenhaal to drum up support for the film and specifically her performance. Those screenings would be very well attended and Miss Gyllenhaal would be nominated for an Oscar for her performance, although she would not win. But having stars like Maggie Gyllenhaal come to do Q&As at the theater also gave me the chance to do something I had always wanted to do before at the theater, but was never afforded the chance to create a green room for special guests when we hosted Q&A sessions. Thankfully, there was a good-sized storeroom behind the two rooftop theaters that I could clean up and decorate for that very occasion. But then, just as we were proving to the industry that Beverly Center Cinemas weren't quite dead yet, we discovered we were dead, and it would be my job to perform the autopsy. As I said earlier, Alfred Taubman was dead set on keeping the theater around as long as he was still around. His children wanted to close the theater and use that space for another anchor tenant. In early 2010, Mr. Taubman would be forced out of his leadership position within the company that bore his name, and the Taubman kids would get their way. They would sell the theater space to Forever 21, and the theater would be closed forever after June 2, 2010. I would spend the next two weeks after that helping to move drink cups and popcorn bags, soda syrup and popcorn seed, and everything else concessions related to the Bridge Cinema Deluxe on the west side of Los Angeles, which Rave had recently picked up from National Amusements. Then I would pack up all the company paperwork that would need to be sent to Dallas for storage, packed up my office, and said my final goodbyes to the theater on June 16th. At the end of the month, I would be living in the Bay Area, having been transferred to the Brentwood Rave where Mr. Spriggs had worked when he helped me open the Beverly Center the previous September. For years, I was angry about how it all went down. The Cineplex Beverly Center wasn't just a movie theater. It was a part of movie history. And it was making a comeback. A comeback that I had helped to orchestrate. But then I woke up one morning several years later and realized that while the theater closing was a sad affair... It actually ended up being a good thing for my wife and I. Had it not been for the closing, she might not have gone to Berkeley Law School or Berkeley School of Chemistry, and our lives would have been far different and probably not as good. I've only been back to the Beverly Center once since June 2010. The week before Christmas in 2018, I needed something from Apple, and their store at the Beverly Center was the only one in all of Los Angeles that had this now discontinued item, and they only had one left. After picking up that item, I headed up to the 8th floor and walked into the Forever 21. I was curious to see just how much had changed. A lot had changed. I was still able to recognize the general layout of the theater space, and I wasn't bothered about the space not being what I felt it should still have been. An employee saw me wandering around and asked me if I needed help finding anything. I didn't, because I had found my closure. And I will probably never go back to the Beverly Center again. Earlier in the episode, I asked you to remember a statistic, a number. 2.35. The average number of screens per theater location just before the Cineplex Beverly Center opened. 
because this is how much of an impact the Beverly Center had on the number of movie theater screens per location in just 10 years. By 1992, there were 25,124 movie screens at 8,000 theaters, an average of 3.14 screens per theater, a 33% gain in just 10 years. In that time frame, the industry had actually lost 500 locations, but had gained 5,000 screens. Ten years after that, in 2002, there would be 35,688 movie screens at 6,144 locations, or 5.81 screens per location. That was a nearly 25% drop in the number of movie theaters from 1992 but a nearly 55% gain of the number of screens. And this trend would continue, although the trend would slow significantly. In 2012, there were 39,662 theater screens at 5,683 locations, or 6.98 screens per location. And in 2020, the last year of data available, there were 40,998 theater screens at 5,798 locations, or 7.07 screens per location. Every 10 years, the number of theaters declined, but the number of screens continued to grow. But that number will likely fall when the 2022 data is finally released due to the number of theaters that have closed either temporarily or permanently due to the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, we were seeing more and more theaters built in the 80s and 90s start to close. The Beverly Center lasted a decent 28 years. But the AMC Grand 24 in Dallas, the first megaplex to feature stadium seating, had opened in 1995 but would actually close its doors a week before the Beverly Center. But like the Beverly Center, it would be resurrected again and again by different companies over the years, including lowering the screen count from 24 to 14 and being converted into a dine-in theater. But it's still not coming close to doing the business it did years before. Before we close this episode up, I wanted to bring on my friend Ross Melnick, who was our guest on our previous episode. While we spoke for that episode, I asked him about the impact of the Beverly Center on the exhibition industry, and this is what he had to say. I just wanted to get your thoughts on what the opening of the Beverly Center meant to the exhibition industry and to the distribution industry in terms of uh, how many films could be made available under one roof. And it literally sent the industry into a building frenzy for the next dozen years ending with 30 screen theaters in many parts of the country. So what do you think the opening of the Beverly Center did to the exhibition industry? Well, I think it changed the idea of what a multiplex slash megaplex was going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, If you go back to the 1910s, the notion of a twin theater was already being uh, created. There were already twins in the 1910s. People always go to you know, Edwards and Alhambra and other things in the 40s and the 50s and 60s. But the notion of more than one screen under one roof is, you know, at this point now, it's over a 100-year-old concept. 
But in the 60s and 70s, we're talking about twins and triplexes and fourplexes and occasionally even six and eight. Um, the idea of the of the cineplex that was in Toronto um, and then the the U.S. build, which is the first one here, was in obviously in the Beverly Center, was to um, really allow for the large diversification of content. And it was in an, I, I think it was in two modes. One was, you know, Garth Dravinsky was very clear about not having un, unfilled seats. So it was also that there was a sense that, well, it's great to play, you know, name your film at a 500 seat theater, but if it only 400 people go, we've lost a hundred seats. So there was the idea that you could, if you had a 75 seat auditorium next to a 200, you could fill the 200 and the 75 by diversification of content. That was good for Cineplex. Also for distributors, it allowed them to squeeze out the last bit of capital from a film that was even there in its first or its second or third run. So that there was always going to be an opportunity for distributors to play this house, which meant that this was an important theater for distributors, whether the theater got it in the first run or not. Or then when it was done being played in a bigger house, they can move it over for the last few weeks and get a few more dollars out of, out of the Beverly Center. I think the other thing was that it was also about capturing the imagination of moviegoers who were sliding out of the notion of the other multiplexes. I think the memory of the 1960s and 70s is that, yeah, the, the new builds were okay, right? So a twin, you know, in a cinema one and two, some is usually purpose built, you know, concrete, solid sound, you know, sound installation. A lot of people were getting, un were getting unhappy about converting converted theaters. A lot of older single screen theaters had been converted to twins and triplexes, which meant that there was sound bleed between theaters, which means sight lines were usually terrible because if you cut something in the middle, oftentimes the best seats in the house were the aisle running through it. So there was a, a beginning of decline of a notion that movie going was uh, declining in favor. And, and then for older audiences who remember the movie palaces downtown or the kind of you know gorgeous art cinemas, they were starting to think all of these theaters were, you know, badly constructed, you know, poor sight lines. And so the Cineplex was, I think, uh, marketed in a way that was really about technology and about abundance of, of content, which meant anyone could go and find something. And when there are multiple showtimes at any one time, and it was this kind of extravaganza of movie going because it was the most screens in the United States. Yeah. And that's how the, the, um, the Toronto, Eaton Center Cinema was marketed when it was open that it had it was the most screens under one roof. Right. So I think people get excited about anything that's the biggest, the most, and so it's classic kind of North American marketing, which is just to excite people by the kind of uniqueness of the enterprise itself. I think for 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 the industry, I think it it did a couple of things. Um, first of all, everyone loves to chase the bigger and better. And so you, if you're running a, a sixplex and your your chain is largely eight, six, four, two, um, you might start feeling a little out of date. Mm -hmm. And also if the tremendous revenue that was coming out of the Beverly Center was also very instructive. Um, you know, it staggered a bit in the beginning, but it found its sea legs in the mid to late 80s. And the Beverly Center, I think it's also worth remembering that the mall itself was enormously popular. 
and it's opening in the heyday of the shopping mall um, in Beverly Hills, and it's right in the center of the industry. L.A. back in the 1980s was much more West Side oriented. Mm-hmm. It still is very West Side oriented, but you know, <clears throat> the entertainment business and the people who worked in it um, had yet to truly find themselves living in um, Silver Lake and Los Feliz and you know Highland Park as much as they do today. Right. So this was the hub. Beverly Hills, near the agencies, you know, sort of near Hollywood, and it was a shopping mecca. So, you know, and all the teenagers, right, from the from these Tony parts of uh, West Hollywood and other areas could come there. So I think it's also the complex. It's the movie theater, and I think the excitement around it um, and other Cineplex audience, Cineplex theaters that opened in the 80s, you know, Century City and others, um, <clears throat> AMCs and others, they all um, kind of began to show the way to having more screens. And so what happens when you start opening, you know, 10, 12, 14 screen auditoria is that you're cannibalizing single screen theaters. So what begins to happen is not just that this theater is a success, but that those who are single screen theaters someplace else in town who are forced to hold a film for three weeks or longer, um, or who can't play, who can't diversify by moving uh, an underperforming film into a into a small auditorium, they're at a suddenly at a disadvantage. This right. theater is designed. All multiplexes are designed for flexibility. Right. They're designed to be reactive and dynamic. And I think for the industry that was really exciting that this provided the opportunity to be dynamically booking. It allowed the audiences to feel that there will always be a showtime, will always be a film to go there. So. If you go way back, and I guess this would be 60 years before the Cineplex Odeon, the idea of going to the Lowe's Paradise in the Bronx was, it didn't matter what was playing. The idea was to go to the Lowe's Paradise. I think for um, the Cineplex at the Beverly Center, I think it was the same. You knew that there would be something for you, whoever you were. And oftentimes there'd be a showtime that worked well with your shopping, eating, or leisure schedule. Right, because you had the... First Hard Rock Cafe downstairs. You had a, a variety of shopping ideas. I, when I was growing up, I'm I lived either in Long Beach or Santa Cruz. And when I was down in Long Beach, I would make the trek to the Beverly Center on a regular basis because, as much as I enjoyed my little UA sixplex that I had been going to since I was in junior high, you know, if I wanted to see Brazil. I'd have to either wait two months before it finally made it to the marketplace, UA Marketplace 6, or I could drive to the Beverly Center that had it on two screens and and, and like once every hour and 10 minutes or so. And, and it's like, oh, and then I can go get something to eat. I could go do a little shopping. Yeah, that was to me was like the coolest thing in the world. And I just... And then I eventually got to work there in the early 90s. And what was fascinating for me about growing up that made me want to work there, because I remember it was the first theater where you could buy your ticket in advance on the same day. Like if you were there, you would, if you wanted to see the seven o'clock show of Brazil, you could go to the theater at 11 in the morning and get your ticket and you had that seat because before if i you know i my dad took me to see star wars at the chinese theater uh 
first week, not the first day. I will never claim that I was there the first day because I wasn't. But it was sometime during the first week. Um, you had to be at the theater. You had to go to the box office and buy your tickets for the very next show and then wait outside in the line with all the other people who had done so. And then if you wanted, if that was the 11 o'clock show and you wanted to see the two o'clock show, you had to wait till the 11 o'clock show was in and all the tickets or and or all the tickets were sold for that 11 o'clock show for them to change the color of the ticket for the next show. So that when the ticket taker was tearing tickets, they knew which show that they were supposed to be letting in because the tickets were purple instead of green or orange or red. And so that was like one of the most exciting things as a teenager. It's like, oh, I can make sure that I can have my ticket, go do a bunch of other stuff and around and then come back for the show that I want to see with my friends or whatever. So that for me was like the, the first biggest exciting thing and then when i got to work at the theater in the early 90s i got there in the summer late summer of 91 is we actually were able to accept american express cards at the box office and to tell people how long ago this was we still had you took the card you put it in the little chiching machine with the carbon the, the, with the carbons chiching have them sign it you give them a p you know you give them the one and you keep the other two copies but that you could sell a ticket with a credit card. You didn't even need to have the cash out with you anymore. You still had to have cash at the at the snack bar. And then that would eventually change a few years later. But the Beverly Center, for me as a kid in Los Angeles in the 80s, was revolutionary just because of all the things that it offered. It had the cafe with, you know, because as much as I like my Coca-Cola and I like my popcorn, I could have a scone and orange juice or a, a, a muffin, the things that you didn't you couldn't get at a movie theater before. And then it to see a perfect simulacrum of something else. Right. It was sort of based off of the Pompidou Center in Paris. And so it had this nod to like kind of being a cultural venue. But mm -hmm. of course, it was just a giant uh, temple to uh to capitalism and shopping yeah. and it also had um if i'm still correct it has a and a functioning still an oil derrick right in the building and it's, so it's just outside if, yeah. if you look yeah if you look at the map of the beverly center there's this like crescent moon shape on the uh western side of the block where there are still oil derricks yeah and so it, it's such a lot it is like it's hard to describe, but it is such a perfect Los Angeles building of a period. It harkens to its 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 sort of past, and in a way, it was almost to its future. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I think that's really central to remember is that shopping centers and shopping mall cinemas became global after this. It, it, they were already going that direction, but this is one of those things that really inspired people. And here's a weird way of thinking about it. Part of it is something to do with public and private. Every shopping center and certainly every shopping mall is actually private land. They have private security. Um, and so in places like Brazil, where there has been an elevation of street crime, certainly from the 80s, 90s, and zeros, they put the mall at the very top of the shopping mall because it's the safest place to be. And in part, a shopping mall like that in the 1980s relies on teenager traffic. Mm -hmm. But it, So it makes it a safe place to bring kids. It means that the theater is performing the the purpose it's had since the 1940s and 50s when shopping center theaters developed, which is that they're anchor tenants. 
for landlords and real estate developers. They are, they are the thing that draws in the foot traffic that gives you the people who are going to go to the Gap and who are going to go to Orange Julius and whatever else you're doing there. So because it was at the very top of the building, it meant that you sort of had to snake your way through these other things to, sh- to go to in order to go to the thing you wanted to, which was the movie theater itself. Right. And so there are so many things about where that film, that theater was located and how it fits into what other people have written about as a kind of shoppertainment and eatertainment that, you know, mm-hmm. that you could almost go in and watch something and then come out and buy the toy or go in and watch a, a thing and then go out and buy the t-shirt that right. fits into a kind of holistic consumer experience that the movie theater generates or that in anticipation of the movie, you're already buying the soundtrack at the music store before you even go into the movie house. And with all of those screens, it meant that again, the diversification, you could literally take your kids, drop them in theater five, and you could go see something in theater eight and just meet them in the lobby when it was over. And because again, it's not on the street, it's up in the mall, it's a safe, quote unquote, safe thing to do in a Los Angeles that is increasingly, like all cities, uh, obsessed with um, crime or the perception thereof, which bleeds into Los Angeles' very complicated uh, racial and geographic history. So it's a very interesting to think about the Beverly Center, the oil, the oil derrick, the shopping experience, the movie house, the public-private, you know, the whole kind of what is the shopping mall, which is what it is, is it's a concentration of capital and retail experiences that draw your money away from the street. And that's its its legacy. And one of the, the things that I've always found interesting is that um, you've heard of the 30 mile zone for, for and I, I will explain this. I, I'm already explaining it in another part of it before we get to this, but the 30 mile zone is at the corner where the Beverly, the Beverly Center is literally, oh, uh, it is literally ground zero for Hollywood production. You know, it's like 30 miles outside the Beverly Center, but the Beverly Center is right there on the corner of where years earlier, actors and filmmakers and producers decided, okay, that's ground zero for the entertainment center. And then this fantastic mall got built after that and became this, this thing. I mean, you know, going back to Mazursky scenes from a mall, from a mall, mm-hmm. you know, most of it was shot at the Beverly Center. Uh, his his 1990 movie with Bette Midler and and Woody Allen. You know, it's just like it didn't. It was more than just a shopping center. It became um, a cultural thing. I even remember watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the 92 movie, where they actually make fun of the Beverly Center, and uh, we actually didn't play. And and we played the movie at the theater. I I. I and we had a whole bunch of both. So it was a great laugh for the people in the audience watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer at the Beverly Center as Buffy is making fun of the Beverly Center in the movie. Uh, so thank you for that, Joss Whedon, who uh, <laughs> that's probably the only time you'll ever be mentioned on the show. <laughs> but yeah, I just, th- there was just something about the Beverly Center that was the right mix of the right things at the right time where it kind of changed history for entertainment in general. And don't you think that's one of the things that's really hard to reconstitute? I think it's, it's hard to look back at the Beverly center and the the cinema and understand how powerful it was. It was a 
it was a very powerful theater in that in the in the industry. But it's hard to remember, even with the Beverly Center's prominence and even the, the amount of retail that it does today, that shopping malls were ever really a thing in America. Mm-hmm. Indoor shopping malls, not these uh, Century City, Americana, you know, kind of um, mixed-use retail kind of mini towns that get built. But the idea of an indoor, wholly enclosed movie house, especially during the pandemic, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But that this was something that people wanted is... Such a part of the 80s. You see it in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. You see it in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Mm-hmm. You see it in all these movies that talk about teen culture. And the 80s and Beverly Hills and the Beverly Center were – and then that's where you know a whole generation of executives and writers whose kids were going to the Beverly Center, their conception of what teenage life was mm-hmm. was watch, taking their kids to the Beverly Center and having them walk around to the retail stores. Not yeah. to the Grove as people do it in Los Angeles now. But the Beverly Center, the Grove that killed the Beverly Center cinemas. So, exactly. Thank you, thank you for that, Rick Caruso. Man, and the many reasons I will never vote for you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have so much. Uh, closing the Beverly Center cinemas in 2010 was the hardest thing I've ever done, professionally or personally. Knowing that we are about to lose this history of cinema. This isn't just a movie theater. This is a fixed point in exhibition history where everything changed after that. And I know that, you know, everything has a lifespan and how it only had pretty much a a 18 year lifespan before the Grove opened in 2000 and the uh, Arclight opened in 2002, where it fell into a steep decline, the theater, where um even the last gas when when we had it that last year when rave had it that last year because i was able to work with my booker to program that theater the way that i knew that theater could succeed again we actually had a 30 after 10 years of straight decline in box office numbers we had a 30% increase in ticket sales in 9 months over the previous year because there was finally somebody who was like, we can make this work again. And it still breaks my heart 12 years later that we were turning that theater around and that we were going to make it something special. And um, and you remember uh, Alan Benjamin. Of course. Um, I don't know if he ever showed you. We He actually had plans when it was still an AMC theater back in 2002 of turning it literally into the very first of what we now consider to be dine-in theaters. Hmm. I'll, maybe I'll, uh, if I can find the plans, but, uh, but the black box concept, the, he, the, we were going to, they were going to retain the same number of theaters, but the seating was going to be reduced more and actually turn it into a dine-in theater. And this would have been like five or six years before AMC or anybody else actually did it. So the fact that, you know, this theater was a, could have been something again, and then to watch it be turned into a forever 21, <laughs> it still breaks my heart. I've only ever been to the Beverly Center once in, in 12 years since the theater closed. And just going through there, it was it was a ghost town. And I went literally a couple of days before Christmas 2018 to the Apple Store. I was getting their lit, the literal last time capsule in Los Angeles County. Beverly Center was the only one that had one left and they only had one. And 
it's Christmas 2018. There's no pandemic. The economy's doing relatively well. And the place was dead. Uh, instead of having actual stores, there was like a Ferrari storefront where you could buy Ferrari gear and there was a uh, one of their, their signature cars. I don't, I'm not a big Ferrari fan, but you could go and sit in a Ferrari and then go buy yourself a Ferrari jacket. And this is what was constituted shopping at the Beverly Center in 2018. Just seeing that mall and, and, and how the theater only survived as long as it did because of uh, Mr. Taubman's insistence that there be a cinema at the Beverly Center. And then as soon as he ceded control of his company to the kids, they literally got rid of the theater in less than a year. It's, it still hurts 12 years later. I think, you know, we, we can go back to look at like AMC. Um, sorry, excuse me, but the, you know, the grand 24 right. in, in Dallas. I mean, there are these moments in exhibition history. Um, and it's interesting that most of the theaters don't last these yeah. very revolutionary cinemas because the next revolution wipes them out. Right. And the other thing is that the, again, that this theater was really felled in part by changes in retail as much as it was changes in exhibition. And the other thing was that it, unless I'm misremembering, I don't remember it being, it was a flat raked cinema. So they didn't have stadium seating. Yeah. Um, no. Uh, yeah. Every theater it had, it had a, most a of the theaters, had, they had a good slope. Yeah. Um, except for the the two theaters that were uh, they they tore out three small theaters in order to build two larger theaters up on the roof of the building, mm -hmm. uh, and those were flat. But all the others had a fairly good slope. Um, so, but yeah, it was it was stadium seating. Uh, you could have easily done stadium seating there. That that would not, would not have been a problem. Uh, it would have been easily to convert. There was. Um, and when we closed the theater, the, the funny thing, um, we tested the DTS digital sound system at the theater in 1992, a full year before Jurassic Park. So if you saw a Universal Studios release in 1992 and 1993, like uh, Joe Dante's um, uh, matinee or Hearts and Souls with Robert Downey Jr., you saw it in digital sound before you even knew what digital sound was. That sound system, the DTS unit number one, was still in operation when we closed the theater in 2010, and it was the uh, and it still worked just fine. That was the amazing thing is that this technology that was that was literally prototype number one was still in use almost 20 years later. But so uh, Ross, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining us. Uh, it has been a pleasure. Thank and, you for having uh, me. And, uh... And I, and I will say, just uh, as we as we depart, uh, it was always a joy to see you at the Beverly Center when I used to go. And uh, it was a strange thing to think about it being gone. It was a hallmark of Los Angeles. It was strange. And uh, everything changes. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is going to be taking several weeks off as we prepare for an updated format. When we return in September, we will be mostly doing 8 to 10 episode seasons revolving around specific themes then taking six to eight weeks off while we work on the next season of episodes. If you're a fan of Karina Longworth's fantastic podcast, you must remember this. You have an idea of what I'll be aiming for. But I also plan on having single episodes pop up when there is a need to commemorate something important that happened in the 80s cinema 
even if we're on a break. So right now, I'm planning to bring the show back on Sunday, September 18th, with either a long-form look back at a company that was once considered to be amongst the most important independent film distributors of the 1980s, till the disturbing actions of its founders came to light in 2017, which caused a major reevaluation of everything they ever did, or a series on the directors who helped to define the 1980s that we haven't quite talked about yet on the show, including James Cameron, Martha Coolidge, Richard Donner, Amy Heckerling, Walter Hill, and Rob Reiner, amongst others. Whichever series we don't end up doing first, we will do after that. So if you haven't done so already, please make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast on your favorite podcatcher so you never miss a new episode. This podcast will be celebrating its third anniversary on August 7th, and it's because of your continued listenership that I continue to create more episodes. So thank you for listening. And remember to visit this episode's page on our website, the80smoviepodcast.com, for extra materials about the Cineplex Beverly Center, including photos taken by myself in the days following the closing of the theater. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, Narrated and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.